Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, and we are back from an unintentional six-month hiatus. I appreciate all of you checking in to see if I was still alive. I admittedly just left all of my podcast equipment in SF pre-COVID, and so haven't gotten back till now. But figured we should start back with a bang, which is why I am very excited to announce Spencer Raskoff, the founder of Zillow, as today's podcast guest. Now, for those of you who don't know Spencer's background, Spencer started his career at Goldman Sachs and TPG prior to founding Hotwire, which he led through the dot-com bubble and eventually IPO'd and sold to Expedia. Spencer then founded Zillow, which is now a $17 billion market cap company and the place to be after binge watching all of season three of Selling Sunset. Now, since then, Spencer's been on a journey starting a whole new venture called .LA, which we'll talk about in today's episode. Fortunately for us, Spencer has also spent an immense amount of time thinking about how to kickstart your early network effects and go-to-market flywheel. So I thought he'd be the perfect person to speak to about how you acquire not only your first thousand early adopters, but then also your next million users. So in today's episode, which I should caveat, was recorded pre-COVID, Spencer and I dive deep into the silver bullet that helped drive Zillow's early network effects, aka the Zestimate. We also chat about the key KPIs that drove Zillow's core business, as well as Spencer's perspective on culture building and employee engagement. Lastly, Spencer and I chat about his next chapter supporting the LA tech ecosystem with .LA. So why don't we get started? Hey Spencer, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm looking yeah. forward to the discussion. Excited here. So why don't we start out with a little bit of context on you? You've had a long and tenured career. You're in quote unquote. You're, old. <laughs> <laughs> You're in quote unquote retirement, but still doing a lot of great work. So why don't we start with the beginning days? Sure. So let's see. I went to college at Harvard and like most people who go to college at Harvard who don't know what they want to do, I ended up in investment banking. I kind of followed <laughs> the conveyor belt to Wall Street. I worked at Goldman in their M&A group a million years ago, 97 to 99 as an analyst. And that was a great formative experience. I highly recommend it to any high school or college students thinking about that path. And I also highly recommend that they leave after two years. I think as you did, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. So anyway, it's a great place to start your career. But for me, it wasn't, it wasn't a good fit for what I was looking for. Let's just put it that way, long-term. And in particular, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but anyway, in 99, I left there, moved from New York to San Francisco, where we are today, and I worked at TPG in private equity, a great firm. Actually, I was just there, just came came here from there, <laughs> where I was meeting with some old colleagues. Great private equity firm, and I was there for a short while before I started a company called Hotwire with some other folks at TPG. And that was 1999, kind of first internet boom. I was 23 and left private equity and investment banking to do a startup, which seemed kind of crazy. It seemed even more crazy two years later in 2001 when first the NASDAQ bubble burst in 2000 and then in 2001 the travel burst essentially with 9-11. So September 11, 2001, basically people stopped traveling and we were an online travel company. And so it was a very, very difficult time for the company and for me as a co-founder and an entrepreneur, one in which I questioned what the heck I was doing there and why I had left investment banking and private equity and why I was doing a startup. And we had a down round and we had layoffs and I could talk for three hours about this dark period of kind of 2001 to 2003 at Hotwire. And fortunately we turned it around somehow. And I'm, you know, if you want, we can talk about exactly what happened there, but 
by 2003, we had actually hired Goldman Sachs, my old firm and my co-founder's old firm to take us public, which was really fun and exciting for me to be able to turn around and, and hire, you know, work with my colleagues. And we were on an IPO path and then we ended up selling the company to Expedia for about 700 million in 2003. And that was a great outcome for the VCs. You know, one piece of advice I'd give to you or any other potential founders, <laughs> although I guess you are a VC, so I should be careful. But basically like down rounds are really tough on common shareholders. And yeah. as a co-founder, my equity and most of my co-founders equity and most of the employee equity was wiped out by the down round after 9-11. And obviously I'm grateful to the investors that kept the company in business by choosing to commit more capital. But let's just say that the headline price of 685 million isn't what it seems <laughs> when there's a cram down, you know, a down round and a ratchet and all these other nasty, ugly things that happen to startups when things go badly. So before we dive into the, we have a long, we have a lot of, <laughs> yeah, we we're only, I'm only 27 <laughs> and we have to get to 44. So we better pick up the pace. So quick tidbit <laughs> though, is in all of that struggle, right? And all of that pain, where did your resilience come from? Was there any specific thing that just kept you pushing? Yeah. I mean, when companies face challenges, like I did at Hotwire or when which we did at Zillow, which I'm sure we'll get to, it's all about rallying with your team and recommitting to each other, recommitting to the mission, realizing that you're there. It's, this is super, I don't know, I've never been in the military and it's crazy to talk about a startup being similar to the sacrifice that people in the military make. But when I do talk to people in the military, they always talk about how they're there for their peers. They're there for their team. They're there for their colleague. They're not there for the political mission that they were sent on. They're not there even for America. They're there for their buddies in the foxhole with them. And that's what startups are like on a much less important scale than, than serving our country, obviously. But that's how you, that's how you get through those times is you lock arms with your friends and colleagues, decide to recommit to each other and to the company. Wow. That's wonderful. And I'll have to keep that in mind as I embark on the founder's path myself, but post Hotwire, we can skip through, you know, the reflections in terms of the M&A and IPO process, yeah. <laughs> but what ended up leading you to Zillow and beyond? So I was at Expedia in 2003 to 2005 in Seattle, and the company was doing well, but it was a slow growth company at the time. It was pretty challenged because of macro challenges, which actually still plague Expedia and, and the whole online travel category to this day. Threats like uh, challenges from companies like Google and from their own supplier partners like the hotels and airlines that view them as sort of a necessary evil. And as a result of that, it was a slow growth environment. And after a year or two, at Expedia, I was just sort of dissatisfied with the level of innovation and the level of, of pace of the company and the lack of personal growth and company growth. And so I joined up with a couple other Expedia people that were leaving also to think about startup ideas. And my two other co-founders and a couple other early employees all spent, gosh, probably three months in a conference room in downtown Seattle brainstorming on business ideas. And all we really knew is that we wanted to work on something together. We weren't even really sure of the category. We had a couple other ideas, which are you know kind of in the dustbin of history that we didn't choose. And we decided to pursue something in online real estate. And that was in 2005. And then we launched in mid 2006. And so I'd love to spend this podcast really focused on early go to market, right? Okay. How do you build a network effects business? Any key lessons learned in terms of key tactics for building both the supply and demand side of that marketplace? Absolutely, lots. So. You have to rewind and put yourself in the consumer's shoes in 2006 in online real estate. So 
There were real estate brokerage websites at the time, CobbleBanker.com, KellerWilliams.com, Century21.com. And there was one category leader, Realtor.com. And Realtor.com was basically controlled by the industry at the time. The National Association of Realtors, which was the trade association for the real estate industry, owned the URL, Realtor.com. And they basically licensed it to an independent for-profit public company. And as a result, they were not innovating and they weren't pro-consumer. And so we looked at this category and saw something quite different from what VCs saw. VCs looked at the category and said, the internet is 10 years old and there is a winner here. It's called Realtor.com. There is a category leader. It's a couple hundred million dollar public company, which at the time seemed like a lot of market cap. Of course, now online real estate has a lot more market cap than that. Uh, But VCs looked at it and said, you know, this category is over. And we looked at it and said, this is the market leader. This this company is terrible. Like I can give you a dozen examples that they didn't show price cuts as an example. So, uh, you know, a listing would be on the market and then there would be a price cut and then they would just show the new price. They wouldn't show the old price. Why? Because the realtor didn't want you to know that there had been a price cut. They did. So they didn't show price history or price cuts. They didn't have all the photos because their business model was to put four photos for free and then to charge the listing agent or listing brokerage to post the rest of the photos. So most of their listings only had four photos, which is obviously terribly anti-consumer. They certainly didn't have a valuation or what we came to call as estimate on homes for sale because a realtor wouldn't like that. You know, the, the price of the home is what the realtor says the price of the home is, not what some computer algorithm says. They didn't have reviews of real estate agents. Again, that's anti-realtor. So anyway, we had a dozen features right off the bat that we thought consumers would love that the category leader wasn't providing and probably never would provide because of the, their structural ownership. But the real insight that, that launched Zillow was this estimate. And the idea here was to try to put a price on every rooftop to try to figure out what every home in the country was worth and show that on a map. And this was pretty shocking and voyeuristic and fun and viral. And the idea that you could have this level of information transparency about something as important as what's your house worth. And we leaned into the kind of whimsy of that voyeurism by in our brand positioning and our PR and our social marketing really emphasizing the, hey, Zillow your Christmas list. You know, you can Zillow your ex-wife's house. You can Zillow your ex-boyfriend's house. You can, you know, see what your parents paid for their house. Like, and and really leaning into that was really valuable. And, and on launch day, we had a million users. Wow. Which I still think to this day, you know, WhatsApp, Instagram, Snap, TikTok, world. I don't think anyone has ever had a million users on day one of their product. LinkedIn was like 10 or 12,000 on launch. I mean, not even close to a million. So that's really impressive. And, you know, there was a very well orchestrated PR plan that led up to that, where the two weeks prior, we briefed kind of the whole tech and business press under embargo because we were the Expedia team. And so we were able to get those meetings with the media. We were able to get them to agree to a press embargo. And when we launched on that first day, boom, with kind of a big bang, we had media coverage in every major publication. And then the the viral aspect of wanting to look up 20 or 40 or 100 people and there's estimates was what launched the company. Then it was a long dry spell. You know, month one, I think was 4 million you use and then probably took almost a year to get back to that level. And we didn't add listings of homes for sale for a couple of years. And people don't remember this, but I think it was probably year three uh, when we first added homes for sale. So we became the third most visited real estate site without any listings of homes for sale, just public data and estimates on all homes, not those that are for sale. 
So to try to summarize this, I'd say the important go-to-market if you're launching a consumer web service is to have something that is, this is such a, this is so trite, but like super innovative and stokes word of mouth and services that rely on SEO to build audience or, you know, they're, they're just gonna have a much harder road to hoe, especially as Google continues to prioritize their sort order with their own services category by category. And so thinking about the supply side of your marketplace or the real estate listings, you were essentially bootstrapping the supply side through publicly available data, right? So That's I would right. assume scraping that data, cleansing it, and then aggregating it. Yeah, we actually went out and acquired, we bought a lot of public data. There was a market for bedroom count, bathroom count, tax assessment, prior sale price, which was sold to the direct mail industry. Mm -hmm. So if you ever wondered why when you move, you get you know a bunch of junk mail, it's because the post office basically the, and the county records are either sold or scraped and sold to direct mail companies. And that's what kicks off all that junk mail. And so we went and acquired all that content, all that data, and then published it on the web and layered on top of it this estimate. And then eventually we added his estimate forecast and eventually we added uh, mm. to, to say what the house would be worth 12 months out. We added for sale listings, rental listings, agent reviews, and a lot of other content. It's really interesting to me that you guys had a silver bullet in this estimate, right? This one defining product differentiator that just sat super distinctly in users' minds, where I think in general, companies struggle to find that silver bullet. And it's more so this combination of a bunch of smaller incremental steps in order to get to Nirvana. And so I really can't think of many companies that have had such a clear defining silver bullet like that in the early days. Yeah. I mean, the thing I'd say about social services, for example, and I know that's an area of interest to you, I'd say they've all had a different mode of self-expression available to them, whether it's the story concept in the case of Snap or, you know, initially it was the status update in the case of Facebook and then the, the wall in the case of Facebook and the newsfeed in the case of Facebook. And now TikTok obviously has a totally different form of self-creating, self-publishing media. So it's a new, it's a novel form of artistic self-expression. There are probably some people rolling their eyes out there thinking these are just stupid ways for kids to mess around. <laughs> and yeah, on some level they are, but you know, the market cap doesn't lie. They're more than that. <laughs> you know, they're, they are mediums of self-expression. And so, so those, that's theirs estimate, I guess, yeah. is like a new form of, of content creation and self-expression. Vine is another was another example. So then as you think about the initial excitement and then the dearth and then getting the flywheel truly spinning, were there any key learnings in generating that flywheel? We had a couple of kind of traffic inflection points. I think one was when we got email marketing right and we started doing really effective safe search notifications and inferred safe search, meaning, you know, you're looking at listings in a given geography in a certain price point, but you haven't actually signed up to receive those listings. Well, at some point we started inferring and kind of, you know, proactively sending you listings that we inferred that you would be interested in and just a variety of email marketing tactics. I think that was an important traffic source. Uh, social media was very important early on. I think bef long before most companies did any social media marketing, we were, actually I personally was, but the company was responding, you know, posting comments on people's blogs, writing on people's Facebook pages, responding to tweets. Uh, I mean, we were way ahead on that. I used to get asked by investors all the time, even on our IPO roadshow in 2011, you know, I can't believe you use Twitter. That's ridiculous. You know, and that was before <laughs> Elon Musk and Donald Trump, you know, and John yeah. Leisure and others 
made it seem commonplace for an executive to, to use Twitter constantly. And I used to get flack for it. So we were at the, definitely the forefront of social media and that was an important traffic source in the aggregate. And then advertising was eventually another very important traffic source. One of the reasons that we raced to get public in 2011 before Trulia was to fill the gas tank with capital so that we could start advertising. And we did that very effectively, mostly on TV. And honing in on the operational side of that flywheel, what were the key KPIs that drove the core Zillow business? Mm -hmm. And I think it makes sense to split this conversation in terms of two different buckets, right? Number one, your supply side with your realtors, and then number two, your demand side with your consumers. And yeah, and kind of how we move the, those metrics. Yeah. So the the thing you have to understand was the the other aha moment for Zillow, there were two other aha moments. One was the platform shift to mobile, which happened in 2009, maybe, if I remember correctly. I remember sitting at my desk and watching Steve Jobs at WWDC demo what would become the App Store. And at the time, there were kind of V1 iPhones that had Apple apps on them. There was a calculator and mail and weather, but there were no other apps. If you can even remember that, you know, that era, it's hard and hard for you were like nine at the time. Um, but, um, and I remember him, you know, saying, look, there's gonna be an app store here and we're gonna let developers create programs for the iPhone. And this light bulb went off for me. I stood up from my chair, I ran over to my co-founder's desk. I was like, we have to pivot the whole company to mobile because right now people use Zillow.com on the desktop if we can have an app on these things, people can use Zillow untethered from their desk. When they're driving around looking at houses, that's when you want real estate information, holy cow. And within a week we dropped Zillow.com, we changed the name of the company to Zillow, not Zillow.com. And we had basically pivoted the whole company to mobile and were one of the first apps to launch uh, six months later. And then we're featured in the app store repeatedly. And then we were one of the first apps on the iPad, which Apple worked with us on and, and on and on. And so today, most of Zillow's usage is mobile. But the second aha moment, and this gets to your KPI question, I promise, was the monetization model. So we messed around with a lot. Once we had this audience, right, I said we had a couple million you use a month, and that 4 million became 5, 10, 15, 20 million, but we really had no business model. We had some display ads, and we had some kind of paid sort order, and we messed around with all sorts of different business models. It was the contact module on the mobile app that became the business model. So when you're looking at an active listing of a home for sale on Zillow, you see a couple agents listed. Those agents appear there now on an auction model and they're bidding on a per zip code basis and you can click to call from the mobile app. And so the combination of auction, inline, you know, actionable, valuable to the user and on mobile was what all of a sudden made us have a business model and, and allowed us to go public and then have ad budget and then turn around and reinvest that in advertising and then grow audience further. So what was the KPI? The KPI was contact rate. You know, we're not e-commerce. We don't sell. Well, actually we can talk if you want. We do sell houses now as we've, as we've <laughs> kind of pivoted the company again and reinvented the company again to focus on buying and selling homes. Put that aside for a second, you know, unlike say Expedia that sells hotel rooms or Blue Nile that sells wedding rings or whatever, you know, what Zillow does primarily is let you research and then connect you with an agent. And so the transaction, if you will, is the contact. And so that was the KPI was, you know, submits, we call them submits per UU, submits per visit, submits per total listing. And, you know, a ton of focus went into driving more submits and, and improving various metrics around that submit KPI. And that focus allowed us to create lots of innovation around how to improve that. 
And were there any case studies you could share around creating any sort of step function increases and improvement as it relates to that submit flow? Sort of. The one that comes mostly to mind is actually deeper funnel than the submit metric even, which is basically a connection metric. For example, a consumer is looking at a listing and they press a button saying, I want to talk to an agent. Well, most of the time the agent doesn't follow up with them. So that lead, that submit goes nowhere. And in theory, because it didn't lead to a real estate commission, the agent is going to bid lower in the future in that zip code and will make less money. So we have to drive more transactions, more real estate commissions per submit or per visit or per, visit, per visitor moving up funnel. So how do you improve the connection rate? We created this thing called Premier Agent Concierge, where when, and this, we still do this today, if you send an email on a home, you're going to get a call from a Zillow employee within, typically within a, a minute, saying, hi, John, you know, I know that you contacted Spencer, the agent on this house, and he's going to do, or the Premier Agent is going to do a great job for you. Tell me a couple questions real quick, like how long you've been looking, how are you already working with an agent? Okay, hang on one second, let me get John, our Premier Agent on the phone with for you. And then we auto bring that John. Now, what we've innovated on over time is if John doesn't answer, is what happens? Do we ring the second one? How can we scale this better? So we started making a lot of this, what I'm describing, automagic rather than manual. So it's all robotic and real time and scalable. Texting is involved, et cetera. So we got way, way, way better at it. So at the end of the day, we now generate many more real estate transactions, which is all the way at the bottom of the funnel, per visit or visitor than we used to by improving the submit rate and improving the follow-up rate, contact rate, you know, commission generated, et cetera. And as you reflect on your Zillow chapter, how did your Hotwire experience inform how you went about building Zillow? Well, probably the thing that we did most well at Hotwire, which we brought to Zillow, was a recognition about the importance of industry relations. And you know, we did a great job at Hotwire of building relationships with the hotel industry and positioning Hotwire as kind of the industry-friendly online travel agency. I love the parallel to how Uber and Airbnb started. Yes. So what's, is the book, The Upstarts, I think, that contrasts Uber and Airbnb? So that book does a great job of contrasting how Uber stormed the castle head first. You know, what happens in medieval times if you storm a castle straight ahead? Well, people pour burning oil, you know, from the top of the castle on you. Airbnb was much more clever about kind of infiltrating, getting inside the castle and then sort of disrupting from within. And I think it's safe to say that that was the hotwire approach. And, and Zillow did a good job of building relations with the real estate industry. Certainly we were disruptive. Certainly we, we upset the apple cart from, you know, <laughs> here and there, but we did it with a smile <laughs> at yeah. Zillow. And so that importance of industry relations, I think I brought from Hotwire to Zillow. Probably the biggest miss was Hotwire was very much of its time from a corporate culture standpoint, meaning it was 1999 to 2003. The founders were in their early 20s. It was very much a culture, <laughs> certainly nothing inappropriate, no, nothing like Me Too-esque, but it was the type of culture where you know, we'd work really hard till 9 p.m. We'd go out and have, you know, the whole team, 20, 30, 100 employees would have dinner together somewhere, have drinks, go back to the office, work till four in the morning, start work again at, at 11 a.m. You know, it was a very like tech bro kind of culture in that sense. Again, definitely nothing I'm embarrassed of or ashamed of in, in those skeletons in that closet, but Zillow was quite different. Zillow was definitely a, a more mature culture. And again, that comes from the founders. And when I helped start Zillow, I was in my 30s, not in my 20s. 
And we created it from the beginning as the type of place where you could bring your whole self to work. It was much more family friendly because we all had kids by then. It was just a, a very different, more mature workplace, a more modern kind of 2020 type workplace. I think that's probably the biggest difference. I'm proud of the Hotwire culture, but it was definitely uh, of its time and yeah. quite different from Zillow. That's great. And so you're now a two-time founder with Hotwire and Zillow. You've also spent time at a slower moving, larger corporation. You've since parlayed that experience into some really fantastic board positions, most notably Zulily and TripAdvisor. How have those experiences informed your work as a board member? I enjoy sitting on boards. I'm on a couple boards right now. And some companies that whose boards I've been on have not gone well. I was on Switchfly, which basically went out of business. I was on Julep, which had kind of an okay exit, you know, sale to private equity. Those were not big winners. And then I was on Zulily, which was a big exit. And, you know, now I'm on TripAdvisor, which is public and, and Zillow, which is public. And I'm on two private boards. So I've had a variety of experiences. Certainly having been an operator makes me a better director. I have more empathy with the management team. I don't freak out when things go sideways. I've seen some directors, you know, sometimes VCs who weren't operators tend to be more excitable, good and bad. You know, when results are good, they are probably higher than they should be. When results are bad, they're probably lower than they should be. And I, I think my operating experience helps me kind of moderate that. I've been a good sounding board on org design for a lot of the CEOs that whose boards I've been on. So why don't we take a stop there? Sure. As you think about scaling something hyper growth like a Zillow, your org is essentially, your company is essentially changing every six months mm -hmm. or a year. How should someone think about that hyper growth stage in org redesign? It's a great question. And they need to think about it constantly because the company's needs are changing rapidly. So the analogy that I would use is, let's say you're a football team and you have a good running back who has a good season and has 1500 yards. It's a good season. He's a good running back. And you come back the next season, he's the same running back. He hasn't lost a step. He's still, he's still capable of doing 1500 yards, but something's changed about the situation. Maybe you have a great wide receiver this year who you didn't have last year, or maybe the other teams in your conference on your schedule have great running defenses. So you decide to throw it more you probably need to let that running back go and make room under your salary cap, even though his performance is totally unchanged. And that's what happens at hyper growth companies. And sometimes you have to level people or let people go or find a new role for them, even if they are the same person that they once were. And that's the weirdest thing about hyper growth companies is you sometimes have to part with high performers, believe it or not. And that's particularly hard at early stage companies when you recruit friends. And I've managed out, you know, friends and friends of friends at several companies. And you'd be shocked actually how many of my angel investments people manage out their co-founder. I would say, I was actually going to do a blog post on this once I did the calculation. I've probably invested in a hundred angels deals, probably about 50 are active right now. And I would guess about a quarter of them have, you know, the, one of the co-founders has separated from the company either voluntarily or, or was pushed out by the other co-founder. So even at the very highest level, the needs of the company change and you kind of got to move on with people. And that's hard. That's really hard, especially for nice people, for nice managers. Like I'm a nice guy and nice people tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so our instinct is, you know, oh, that person was, is doing well. And like, or maybe they're not doing so great, but surely they can improve and I'll work with them. And the other challenge of hyper growth companies is you don't have time. You know, you don't have 18 months to try to figure out if a person can make it or not. And so that's just a huge challenge is constantly as a manager, either the CEO or any manager at these hyper growth companies, thinking through 
if knowing what I know about all of my team, would I rehire every one of them for the roles that they're in today, knowing the challenges that those positions will face over the next six months, not the last six months? All those people are going to show up for work today. Why? Because they were employed at the company yesterday. But you have to think, would I hire them anew for the roles that they're in, given what lies ahead? And forcing yourself to do that is exhausting and taxing and difficult and can force a lot of hard decisions. So then on the flip side, I think a lot about recruiting talent. And this market, it's so competitive. And in my opinion, one of the only things that matters in the knowledge economy is talent. Mm -hmm. So if you have any specific insights for founders around recruiting talent, what would they be? I think you want to invest in people and culture earlier than you might expect. I think once you're at 20 plus employees, it's time to have not just a recruiter or two, but some proper HR function. I think once you're at 50 plus employees, an HRBP, an HR business partner is really important and you should have an HRBP for every 50 or so employees. So you know, hyper growth companies at like 200 employees, they're probably gonna have 10 recruiters and they tend to always over invest, not over invest, always appropriately invest in a lot of recruiters, but they typically have no HRBPs. And they should probably have four or five. And most startups are like, oh, that's expensive. And that's, you know, that's bureaucratic. And that's, that's something that old lame companies have. I disagree. And I disagree because as important as recruiting is, employee engagement is even more important. I'll tell you a quick story, you know, for a moment, like, and I can't remember if I've ever told this story publicly, so I hope I don't get in trouble for it. But um, <laughs> I was a, at a dinner of Seattle CEOs about four or five years ago. And it was the Seattle CEOs had kind of gotten together to discuss what were we gonna do about all of these Bay Area tech companies moving up to Seattle and opening engineering offices. You know, Airbnb is here now and Uber's here now and Dropbox is here now. And you know, why won't they just stay in San Francisco where they belong? And so the Seattle like crew had sort of gotten together to figure out, like have this conversation about <laughs> recruiting and retention in the context of the, all these evil San Francisco companies that were stealing our people. And Satya Nadella from Microsoft kind of commanded the room's attention as, you'd expect him to, you know, there were probably, I don't know, I would guess there were 20 or 30 of us there. And he said, all this focus on recruiting is misguided. You all are spending all this time talking about how we can increase the size of our funnel and recruit at colleges that, you know, are off the beaten path and pay more signing bonuses and change the vesting schedule and all this recruiting stuff. And actually employee engagement is so much more important. I have, I forget what the number was, you know, 200,000 people, whatever it is in Seattle that work at Microsoft. And if I can just get them all to be 5% more engaged, if I can just get them all to lean forward in their chair a little bit more, work slightly smarter, work slightly harder, care a little bit more, that productivity boost would swamp any recruiting improvement that I could ever come up with uh, around any of these other tactics. And that I just, there are only a few moments in your career where like this light bulb goes off. And for me, that was one of them. I was just like, oh my God, he's right. He's totally right. So recruiting is of course important. And the advice that I would give, of course, would be to create employee referral programs and have great recruiters and be a great salesman and always be recruiting and kind of all that obvious stuff. But I, I just, I want to like give a little hat tip to the importance of employee engagement, which I think doesn't get talked about enough. I couldn't agree more where I think coming from a legacy financial institution, I mean, like we said before, wonderful experience, two years, <laughs> highly recommend it. Despite I think how much the industry talks about culture, there really isn't the same sense for culture in the, in the sense that you would get at a Zillow or a Microsoft. And for me, the light bulb didn't really click until I actually had a good friend of mine rationalize it a couple of years ago where 
in the old days in the manufacturing economy, you would invest in machines because that was your productivity, that was your output, right? You had to have the best machines to churn out the Ford cars as fast as possible. And now with the productivity and the knowledge economy, you have to do everything you can to invest in your people. Yeah. And so sure. employee engagement is employee productivity, showing up to work every day. I mean, I'm a millennial, so people make fun of me for being very idealistic. Well, yeah, me. well, that's the other thing that's happened is not only is the knowledge economy a thing, as you point out, but employee expectations have changed radically. Yeah. You know, your generation, and it, actually, it's not even just your generation, really almost every generation in the workforce now, including my generation in my mid-40s, wants to work for a company that makes them feel part of something bigger. And, you know, this is why, was it, was it Lloyd Blankfein, our former employer, that said, you know, we're doing God's work? Remember yeah. when he kind of <laughs> stepped in stepped in some doo-doo when he said that? And everyone kind of laughed and rolled their eyes and whatever. But, like, kind of, I would give him a little credit for trying, right? He was trying, and I think he actually believes this, he was actually trying to explain that the capital allocation that investment banks allow around the economy creates positivity, which is hard to hard to see. And, you know, creating efficient markets for capital and providing advice for companies that go on to do great things like that actually is kind of at a meta level, super important and is the grease of innovation of other companies of clients of theirs was what he was inarticulately trying to say. But so credit to him, you know, one of my favorite episodes on my Office Hours podcast was with Mike Corbat, the CEO of Citigroup. And he talks very eloquently about this exact topic. And he's like, this new generation of people they don't want to just go to a bank, like they have to be part of something bigger. And so we have to make city mission oriented. We have to make it be the type of place they can bring their whole self to work and they can, you know, be themselves and they can have an impact. And, and he talks about the importance of, in particular, of office space, of how he broke down all the walls at city. And so now they have open floor plans and that's been so important to innovation and to culture, et cetera, and how important an open floor plan can have. So this is important stuff. A lot of people roll their eyes, I mean, about some of it. Less than used to, you know, 10 years ago when I was blabbing about all this HR stuff, I think people were like, what? Like CEOs are supposed to be good at strategy or good at sales or good at fundraising, but like HR, like what, yeah. why is a CEO even talking about HR? That's, I don't get that anymore. I think now people get that like the HR function is a CEO function and it's, it's pretty darn important. It's, I mean, as an example, as a really tangible example, I know this is weird as someone who was the CEO of a tech company for a decade. I definitely spent more time, like personally, in a given week with my CHRO than with my CTO. And let that sink in for a second, right? I was running a giant tech company. I spent more time with my head of HR than my head of, of, of tech and product. I actually had Dom Barden join the podcast a few months ago. And Dom's the global chairman of McKinsey. And he actually recently did a study where he studied the top performing companies of this era. And there was one consistent pattern between those companies. And that's that the CEO the CFO and the CHRO all consistently meet on a week-to-week -week basis where you have the product and the vision, you have the financials and the ROI analysis, and then you have the people and the talent and the knowledge base all come together into one roof and collaborate. And so I actually think that's a good transition to my last question here, which is around the title of the podcast, Pattern Recognition. Sure. So yeah. Spencer, what is the most consistent pattern you've seen across the most successful network effect-based businesses? So, I mean, network effect businesses... Are, tend to be defensible because supply begets demand, demand begets supply, and then there's some sort of a lock-in. And years later, you even have companies like Craigslist that even despite a terrible product and you know no mobile experience, it still has wide use because it has supply of content and therefore it has demand for that content. I think there are some companies that 
masquerade as network effect companies that aren't really network effect companies. In fact, I tweeted about one yesterday, a startup that was doing, is creating video content in a really niche area. I didn't share the name because I didn't want to throw them under the bus, but, and so they described themselves as a network effect. I'm like, well, not really, because some other startup can come along and create a video on that unique content. It's just unique content. It's not a network effect. So I guess beware of fake network effects. And I'll give you another quick example, even from closer to the home, TripAdvisor. So I taught a class at Harvard Business School this fall called Managing Tech Ventures, and I wrote a case study about TripAdvisor for it, and I'm on the board of TripAdvisor. And in that case study, I describe how people think of TripAdvisor as a network effect because it has all these re hotel reviews and they're, therefore audience. And it is a network effect. But what most people miss is that there is diminishing value to the incremental hotel review. Yeah. So you got 5,000 hotel reviews on the San Francisco Merit. That's great. 5,001 is useless. And so now along comes some other company, whether it's Google or Expedia or Booking.com with say a hundred hotel reviews, and that's good enough. And so all of a sudden TripAdvisor's network effect doesn't look quite as strong as, as it once did because of the diminishing value of the incremental you know, content added to that network. So avoid fake network effects. And it's a little unfair. TripAdvisor does have a network effect, but it's not as, as impenetrable as I think some people once thought. That's wonderful. Well, Spencer, we didn't even get to .LA. But well, we got to plug that. that real quick. Yeah, we got to plug that right, real quick. 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so I started another company called .LA. That's D-O-T period L-A. And I moved to L-A four years ago, and I'm very passionate about the L-A tech community. There's a lot going on in L-A. I think it's a great place to start a company. And there are founders and entrepreneurs and unicorns and public companies and VCs and seed funds and incubators and, there, and engineers and universities. There's everything there that you need for a robust tech community, but there was no journalism. There was no TechCrunch. There was no GeekWire. You know, the LA Times has basically ignored tech. And so I raised a $4 million seed round from the LA tech community, recruited a newsroom of, of um, editors and journalists and reporters. And we launched in February, 2020. And we're now the arguably after just a couple of weeks, the market leader covering the LA tech community. It was a low bar, but we cleared it. And, you know, for those that are interested in what's happening in LA tech, that's where they should turn to for their news. To all of our LA founders, please check out .LA. Thank you. So, I appreciate Spencer, it. thank you so much for the time. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Once again, a big thank you to Spencer for joining us today. I've actually been on my own product journey the last few months and listening back to this episode, I realized just how many more questions around the nuances of product that I wish I could have asked. That I'll have to save for a conversation another time. Now, if you're at all interested in the LA tech scene, I'd highly recommend you check out .LA. It is a wonderful resource for getting connected in the community. And in the meantime, if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you gave a quick rating and review as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can also check out show notes and more on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com or reach me on Twitter at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y anytime. So thank you all for tuning in and I will talk to you next week. Bye.